It really called into question the current model of a lot of Spanish TV. So they're starting at the gutter. La Portada podcast with Simon Hunter and Lily Mayers. We are here to read all of the Spanish news so that you don't have to. It's crazy. I've just been watching the Spanish media ecosystem fall apart at the seams. Let's delete me talking about my wife. Yeah. I just want to talk about the, all the optics. Let's talk the drama. Let's talk the drama. <laughs> my apologies to any drunk Brits out there who may have been offended. Our Twitter thread is cursed. I mean, yeah, go back and listen to our coverage last no, no, week. Don't, don't. <laughs> ¿Listos? Sí. Vamos allá. Hello, welcome to La Portada. My name is Lily Mayers and the seasoned giri across the table from me is my co-host Simon Hunter. We are here to drown out the noise and give you the key news from this week so you can experience Spain at a deeper level. On today's La Portada, we'll be looking at the exhumation of a Franco-era general, the fallout of more than two dozen migrant deaths at the Malia border, and we speak to BBC reporter Courtney Bembridge about a documentary covering that crossing which was released this week. But before we get into this week's episode, Simon, you're in Asturias this week. How is that? It was amazing. I'm sick, but that's the price you pay for enjoying yourself and also hanging out for uh, hanging out with uh, lots of small children. And um, we went away with um, the uh, parents from um, my youngest son's class. There was a group of four of us, uh, which was hilarious because we were all driving around. We all got SUVs and we were all driving around in the convoy of these four SUVs. We looked like the sort of you know U.S. presidents, Pack. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like Joe Biden sort of driving around in convoy around Asturias. But it just goes to show this is I always say go to parts of Spain with Spanish people who are from that area because the experience is just incredible mm, people totally. they're so generous um, they're always so excited to have you like in their area if or in their village or region or whatever it might be incredibly generous with food my god mm. um, you come back a bit yeah you? oh actually you know the, the, <laughs> the mother of um, one of our friends um, just m- made this amazing fabada which is mm. the Asturian Stew. bean stew you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it was delicious. very funny because the day before we went to their house, it was it was incredible. It was like a converted um, uh, farmhouse, and so we were in this massive barn which they use for parties and family stuff and weddings and things like that. And the day before, we we actually met them at a, a, a different restaurant, and the mum was like, um, "Yeah, I'm going to do fabada." And we were like, "Oh, that's great! That's so exciting!" And then she said to everyone, um, do, "You know, do you like cayos? Uh, which cayos is tripe? Uh, it's like a tripe, like stomach." You know, like oh, intestines. Like yeah, exactly. Uh, vegetarian yeah, yeah. here. I'm not very good on my <laughs> meat vocab. To be and, and so, and we were we were very honest, and we were like, no, no, we don't. No, she sort of looked slightly put out, but we turned up um, on the day, and there was tribe anyway. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> so we, at least we sort of said, well, no, we're not going to eat it. But one of one of the, one of the dads had said that he did like it, and he just kept getting served bowls and bowls of tribe, and he sort of gradually turning green and not oh, wanting to say no. It's very very funny. Um, we were in a place called El Cuto, which is about 25 kilometers east of Oviedo, 30 kilometers south of Gijón. The views were incredible. From the top of the you know the hills that we were walking up, you could see the Picos de Europa mountains. Mm. The mist was below the the uh, where we were in the valleys. Uh, if you check my Twitter, actually at Simon in Madrid, I did share some share some photos. I said, shared stunning. photos of food as well. Mm. Um, we went to the Jurassic Museum, which was great for the kids because lots of dinosaur stuff there. Um, and we also 
also went to this mining museum in San Munio. Uh, you actually get on a genuine mining train. It takes you down into mm. the mine. Yeah, it was. I, I actually, I was like, this is incredibly claustrophobic and panic-inducing oh. at the start. Yeah, I don't think I could do that actually. No, I was just thinking of my mum. I was like, my mum, I just have right. an absolute panic attack here. But once you got through the 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 train part there, you know, and you had a look through uh, around the mine, then um, you take a lift up and. If, basically converted all the old buildings into into museums so you can see you know how the mine worked it was oh, it was amazing wow, the was, kids yeah. must have loved it as well. oh my god well they were so excited to be together obviously mm. um and and yeah we were just excited to be enjoying all the food and and all the sights and so, fresh yeah. air out of yeah food, absolutely yeah. no it was fantastic really really good beautiful well tonight i'm off to the royal theater for oh, a look show at you. i know opera house uh, at, uh, for a show called Fiesta Flamenco by Faro, and it's all improvised. So it's nice. kind of more like a real town vibe of what you'd get, you know, for an off-the-cuff flamenco performance with friends, I suppose, in Sevilla particularly. Fantastic. Uh, so I can't wait to tell you how that is. How's your flamenco dancing going? It's it's getting better, uh, but it's all <laughs> footwork at the moment. Like, we're, we're, they're doing it in two parts. I'm doing pu- pu- sort of hand I'm, I'm embarrassed to say i don't remember the word for the hand <laughs> movements but we're doing panned parts at the start and then foot feet work footwork separately so uh i'm kind of getting there on the footwork and but i can't put them together you've got to put them together yeah. it's like when you learn the piano and you've got to do the rhythm and like, the melody or yeah the, you know, i kind of look like i'm doing an irish sort of jig at the moment because it's just a lot of hopping back and forth on the foot but once once i get the hands i'm i think I think it's going to look okay. Nice. Well, yeah, we need, we're going to need to see some video or something of this that we can share on our on our Twitter feed uh, pretty soon. As soon as you feel, just give me, yeah, enough, give me. Yeah. I'd say give me another month. <laughs> Sometime before I'm next gonna... year. <laughs> well, as usual, thank you to all of our patrons. As you know, all we are asking for is the cost of a relaxing cup of café con leche in Plaza Mayor. Uh, this week, we heard via patron from listener and subscriber Michael McGrath. He said, "Excellent. This is becoming essential listening. So please." do support us and uh, do get in touch um, some of our podcast heroes who date back from my time at the other place I'm talking to you uh, specifically in your <laughs> ears we're still waiting for a few of you diehard supporters to sign up I'm you know I'm not going to sound disappointed but um, I am disappointed don't forget if you support us on Patreon you will not only get the episode on Fridays instead of Sundays but you will also enjoy some bonus content last week we did some classic Spanish quotes from over the years we've looked at Spanish TV and newspapers and this week we will be talking about some of our favourite social media accounts about Spain that bonus content will go separately on Patreon so I really encourage you all to sign up today to enjoy that and to support our work on the podcast. There have been a few technical problems um, trying to sync up Acast, which is our platform for the podcast, and Patreon. But we think that we've fixed it all now. Um, If you haven't already, what you need to do is go to the membership tab on Patreon, and there you will find a box that says, Listen on other podcast apps, and a button that says Copy Link. Uh, When you take that URL or that link, and you paste it into your podcast app, that way you will receive the um, Patreon episodes as they are published someone else was asking as well about the bonus content from um season one uh, of which there is none <laughs> because we didn't we weren't doing this then so there's no bonus content from season one and there's no bonus content from episode one of um this season either it starts in in episode two and is tacked on to the end of episode two but since then we've been doing it separately so hopefully should be easier to locate 
All right. Well, now admin's out of the way, let's get into the news. Okay, well, we're starting the show six feet under today because this week, Spanish authorities exhumed the body of a Francoist general. Gonzalo Quiepo de Llano, who commanded the Nationalist Southern Army in 1936 and 37, is believed to have ordered the deaths of tens of thousands of Spaniards during the Civil War. He was buried in the Macarena Basilica in Sevilla until church authorities were ordered to dig him up this week. Footage of the exhumation process showed the body of Quiepo being driven away from the church in a van as family members shouted, Long live Quiepo. Pessoa Minister for the Presidency Felix Bolaños said this week, We can't have any place that serves as homage to genocidal killers. But the political sphere wasn't wholly on board with this exhumation, was it, Simon? Or at least not openly. No, I mean, this is the typical thing that splits down left and right lines, as so many things do in Spain. Uh, and the right wing parties are very much opposed to all of this kind of stuff. In fact, the popular party has said directly that it will repeal historical memory lo- uh, legislation um, if it gets into power at next year's general elections. But of course, this all stems from the new democratic memory law, which mm-hmm. is aimed at sort of you know redressing some of the um, or closing some of the wounds that still persist from the civil war and the subsequent um, Franco dictatorship. Um, and it was, yeah, it was three people, three coffins were removed from La Macarena this week in, in, in Sevilla. It was, uh, it was the general, it was his wife, uh, Genoveva Martí, and a, a war auditor, another general from the Civil War, uh, General Borquez Bethina. Uh, they all came out, they were all taken out about, it was just after 2 a.m. I mean, this... It had been made clear by the the, the Brotherhood uh, that looks after the La Macarena that this was going to happen, but it wasn't, um, you know, hadn't, a date hadn't been put on it. So it was kind of what happened was that the word got around that um, it was happening on Wednesday night. Um, so journalists turned up, mm. family members or relatives um, of the... Um, of the three turned up as well. And uh, Paki Makeda also turned up. Now, she is the president of a historical memory association. Her family members, her relatives were among the victims. Mm. Um, and she kind of mm, put on a little impromptu um, demonstration and started um, um, kind of shouting uh, as the as the funeral vans came out, she started to cry at things like honor and glory to the victims of Francoism, um, as, as well as voicing cries against impunity. Um, and she, you know, basically started to call out the names of her relatives who were killed mm. um, during the Franco era repression. <laughs> Someone called out an insult um, against her, but, you know, she carried on. And really, it does kind of beg the question, what on earth was um, General Capo the Llano still doing in, the, in, that, uh, mm. in that basilica? Because this is a, a particularly nasty figure um, from Spanish history. Uh, he's thought to have been responsible for 
ordering, as you said, Lily, 45,000 mm. executions during the war and the early early years of the regime. Um, he also made radio broadcasts. He was like, I don't know, have you ever heard of Lord Haw-Haw? Lord Haw-Haw was a, no. a, a Briton who used to do these broadcasts for the Nazis during the um, during the Second mm. World War um, that the English could hear. Uh, and some of these radio broadcasts were really, really unpleasant. He was warning that, um, you know, the, the the wives of the Rojos, the, um, you know, the Republican mm. side, would be raped by Franquist forces, which was something that they deserved. And I read this yesterday, Jesus. which was interesting. Yeah, it's really nasty. Ian Gibson, the Hispanist, he, he actually says, he, in one of his books, says that it was uh, Capo de Llano who ordered the execution of poet mm. um, Federico Garcia Lorca um, so why anyone would want to defend <laughs> leaving this particular yeah. character where, where he is is, is difficult to know um, so since this law went into effect this is something we've covered in, of, um, in other podcasts um, one of the elements of the law is that it uh, allows for the exhumation of um, figures from the Franco regime to be uh, exhumed and moved if they are in a place where they can be you know publicly praised or or you know the the the, the object of um public rallies of of support or of honor of of um homage or whatever um and since that law went into effect we've already heard from the family of uh, Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera, which, who was the founder of the fascist Falange Party. They've announced that they're going to exhume his remains from the Valley of the Fallen before the um, Spanish government does it itself. And of mm. course, this, let's not forget, let's go back to 2019, the Congress uh, of Deputies voted in favour uh, of removing Franco from the Valley of the Fallen, which for many, it was high time that you know he was yeah. removed. Everyone always uses the the comparison can you imagine a you know still a, a monument mm. to Mussolini yeah. in Italy or to Hitler in yes, Germany um, and since then we've also seen um, the Spanish government strip uh, Franco and nine other figures from the regime of medals um, Yolanda Diaz the deputy prime minister from Unidas Podemos when she announced that she got very emotional se ha tardado demasiado tiempo pero hoy es posible les pido disculpas y a partir de hoy sí del Ministerio de Trabajo eliminamos el libro de la infamia. Nunca más. But uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, this all falls down to a sort of left versus right. The right, especially the far right, say, leave it alone. Don't drag up the past. Um, as I said, the PP have said they'll repeal the law. The Vox president, far right Vox president, Santiago Abascal, he said this week that Sanchez, uh, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, was desecrating graves. Um, but, uh, you know, let's not forget the, the, the PSOE, the Socialist Party, they put in the historical memory back in the early 2000s. And then the Popular Party came into power and basically stripped all of its funding. That was under the um, prime, the PP Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, which meant that all of the work to exhume these victims, many of whom are still laying in the roadside graves, is basically all ground to a halt. Mm. Um, and it's not until the Socialists have come back into power and we've got a left-wing administration again that this work is doing is being done to kind of address some of these um uh, address some of these old wounds also this week we saw the first official day of remembrance and tribute to um the victims of the of the coup the subsequent civil civil war uh, and the dictatorship obviously members of the government attended but no one from the pp uh, or none of the high you know the high ranking figures from the pp uh, attended and the pp leader alberto nunez fejo 
um, he didn't come. The, the Madrid regional premier, Isabel Díaz Ayuso, didn't come, and nor did the mayor of the capital, José Luis Martínez Almeida, which is, is, is pretty incredible. In fact, Fejo's not having had, he's not having the best week. No, he's not having a good week. <laughs> he, um, in response, he was asked about the exhumation uh, this week in Seville, and he gave his sort of typical... Not only just a typical Galician response, but also um, a very typical PP response. He said, I would rather speak about the living than the dead. Politics should leave the dead in peace. I'm not going to play politics with the dead. To which everyone started shouting either at their TV screen or, mm. or at their computer screen. What about ETA? What about what the popular yeah. party does with ETA and the way that it uses it for, pol- for politics, even though that you know ETA is now defunct, gone. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Defunct and... Um, and not a, not a, not an issue anymore. Um, but they keep using it to bash the socialists because the socialists do deals with Bildu, which is the political party that has emerged. What well, is you know Basque radical left political party um, with historical links to um, to ETA. And of course, the resp- the other response that everyone said was that the, you know okay, well this still affects the living. Look at how mm. upset and they're political. People that have died. It's not just anyone. Exactly. And look at how upset Yolanda Diaz or someone like um, Paki Maqueda was. Mm. Um, you know, over over these uh, recent issues, it's still so fresh. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it, it is for a lot of people, especially those who've lost relatives and never been able to recover their and recover their bodies. Also, Fejo, just on a side note this week, we're going to have to have a a regular, you know, Fejo's gas. Fejo corner. (laughs) Fejo corner. He blamed the, this is bizarre, he blamed the socialists for scrapping a tax deduction that was in place uh, for home purchases. But it was in fact it was in it was Rajoy that did that uh, in 2013, actually breaking an electoral. Ooh. Yeah, it was a very strange gaffe. Rajoy actually broke an electoral promise to, uh, when he did that. So yeah, very, very odd. So yeah, we'll, we'll we'll be we'll be coming back to Fejo, I think, in in, in future episodes. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our next story. Now, on June 24th of this year, thousands of would-be migrants rushed the border fence at Spain's North African exclave city of Melilla. The result was a death toll of at least 23 people who were killed in a crush as they tried to scale the fences and reach Spanish soil. Scores more of these would-be migrants are still unaccounted for. The world was shocked to see videos of the incident, which emerged in the subsequent days and was shared, among others, by a Moroccan human rights organisation. Since the tragedy, which was the deadliest ever at Spain's North African borders, there have been accusations of brutality and mishandling of the situation against the Spanish authorities. But the government has insisted that there is no case to answer to. The pressure on the Sanchez administration, however, rose this week due to a BBC documentary that, among other things, carefully analysed all of the available videos from that day. Yes, listeners may remember we covered the story that week on the podcast. Well, after watching the BBC documentary Death on the Border, we wanted to have a more in-depth chat about this story. So I spoke to Courtney Bembridge, a former colleague of mine, who formed part of this investigative team who put together the film. Here is that conversation. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us on La Fortada. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Uh, Well, you and four other BBC journalists put this story together over the summer months this year. 
Can you tell us what your role has been in making the documentary Death on the Border? Yeah, so this story first came to us in late June when these horrible, shocking videos started emerging on social media and they were also circulating uh, amongst people on the ground and that was coming to us through sources, through we had um, local journalists there who were getting in contact as well, but none of it was verified. So we, we had these images, but we couldn't say for sure where they occurred and what day they occurred. We were told that they were filmed on June 24 at this incident at the border, but we needed to verify all of that. So by the time I was involved in the film, uh, we had a fantastic open source investigator. He's one of the best in the world. His name is Benjamin Strick, and he was on board, and he had basically gone through uh, each and every one of these videos, geolocated it, and chronolocated it, so worked out exactly what time it happened, where it happened, and he built up a map of this whole area, not just of the border post, this of course happened on the Spain-Morocco border, but also of the hills surrounding the border post. So he had plotted these videos starting right up in those hilly forest areas, some distance away from the border, right up to the border. And we built a picture of what happened that day and, and where each of the videos were filmed. In the absence of much information, the, the official account from the author- authorities was that reasonable force was used at this was an illegal crossing and that these people were armed and violent. And some of the the official account didn't match up with some of the information that we had from these videos. And so I was brought in to try to marry those two, to try to work out exactly what happened here, to get to the truth of what happened that day. Um, We spoke to about a dozen migrants who were there that day. Many of them are living on the streets in Morocco. Um, They still have injuries from that day. Uh, One of the men we spoke to, Yusuf Abubeda, we tracked him down in the Canary Islands. And when we spoke to him, he had a a big scar, maybe eight centimetres long on the back of his head. And that, he said, was from where the Moroccans, the Moroccan security forces had beat him. Now, the, the significance of that is that this was not just a beating in the chaos of that moment. So inside the border post, there was chaos, there was violence. And, you know, it was it was a very tense situation. There was tear gas everywhere. He says that he was not injured during that kind of chaos, that he'd made it onto Spanish land. He had got over all three fences at that border infrastructure. He was standing on Spanish land. The Spanish National Police, the Garda Seville, were in front of him. And he says they handed him back to the Moroccan security forces. And we've seen vision from photographers filming on that side showing those kind of um, so-called pushbacks happening. And he says it was then, he was uninjured at that point, but it was then when he was handed back to the Moroccan security forces that he was beaten um, across the head, left on the ground, and, and he was unconscious for several hours. So those were the kind of testimonies that that I was able to gather um, in conjunction with the team who, ha- who had worked out, you know, exactly what was happening at each point. And, and that's kind of where, how our team came together on this one. The maps that were used together with the videos and the testimonies from survivors really, as a viewer, made you feel like you were doing the journey with them from the nearby mountain range where those camps were straight down to the border. We're going to get into the details of that journey in a bit, but for those who haven't seen the documentary, what do you feel were the most shocking revelations uncovered through that process uh, apart from the horrible beating you just mentioned? So one of the big things that's come out of this, uh, obviously, and had big response in Spain, is the response to the incident at the time from the Spanish National Police and what they did at the time and whether 
some of these deaths occurred or, or whether there were bodies on the Spanish side of the border. And that was one of the big things that, that came out of this, that previously the Spanish authorities had said there were no deaths that happened on the Spanish side, uh, but we found evidence and we were it was backed up by an interview we did with a uh, senior member of the Garda Seville at the border that there was at least some bodies on the Spanish-controlled part of the border. Now, that was an area that was unlocked by Spanish keys there were Spanish gates. So we were able to contradict the official account, which, which said, and, and up until in September, the interior minister had said that this happened, this incident happened in a sovereign country and, and only in a very tangential way, his words, in a very tangential way in Spain. And so that was one of the biggest things that came out of this, that that, that we were able to disprove that and show that, that Spain was you know involved and that there were Moroccan guards on Spanish controlled territory that day. So when you're talking about migrants dying on the Spanish side, you mean they've died on Spanish controlled territory in the border facility rather than on clear Spanish land because if migrants do get across the three fences of the border wall, in theory they're eligible to claim asylum in Europe, but if they don't get that far, they're sent back or distributed throughout Morocco, right? People were on technically European soil, but they weren't able to get to the, the place where they needed to seek asylum. They were pushed back across the border, taken back through the border infrastructure before they could do that. So that was something that, that we again, didn't, didn't quite match up to what, what the European standards were, but it is, it is legally contested. So there are, there, it's a grey area there in terms of what Spain and Morocco have agreed and how they can do that within the framework of the European Court of Human Rights. Now, Spain's point is that it's all of the rejections, it says, at the border that day were done in conjunction with Spanish law endorsed by the European Court of Human Rights. So Spain's saying legally their position is solid. But of course, human rights lawyers are saying that this is exactly what happens when you externalise your border policy to a country with a very poor human rights record in Morocco and you, you are pushing the problem onto another country and then trying to wash your hands of it. And they've been very critical of Spain's approach to this and have said that there needs to be answers about exactly the number of people that were pushed back across the border that day. And of course, we've had some con contradicting statements from the Ministry of the Interior about that. We put this documentary together and of course, we gave the Spanish Ministry of the Interior the opportunity several weeks to comment on the allegations that we had raised and the findings that we had had uncovered during the course of this investigation. We sent them all to them in, in, a, dollar, in a bullet point format. And they said that this claim that 300 people were pushed back, or at least 300 people were pushed back across the border from Spain to Morocco, was absolutely false and not corresponding to reality was, was their wording. And then just a few weeks later, the Spanish Ombudsman, who is one of the agencies that is looking into this in terms of an investigation, looking into this uh, incident, said, in fact, that 470 people were pushed back across the border. So even within Spain, there's been contradictions about exactly what happened that day. So that was something that we really wanted to look at and the legality of it. We, we were trying to pin down exactly, uh, you know, whether that was endorsed by Europe or not, because that's the other aspect. This is not just about Spain. This is about the EU and Europe and its broader policy towards migration. 
Mm, that's right. Um, one of the most shocking elements of the vision shown in the documentary were the evident number of people injured and yet the lack of medical intervention at any point, it seemed, uh, particularly given that there were clashes with police and migrants nearby the day earlier and the huge group can be seen coming down to the border from a distance. So it wasn't a sneak attack on the on that border, uh, the Barrio-China border, by any means. Have you heard any explanation for that? element? Yeah, so the Moroccan authorities say that they did give medical care, but we saw certainly no evidence of that. We also saw several buses parked outside the border. We used satellite imagery to verify that, that there were buses there waiting to take the migrants injured among them, of course, the, the in the documentary, we hear from the family of a man who was loaded onto one of those buses while injured and later died on that bus journey. So there were very few ambulances there. The ambulance, we were told, were used to transport the bodies to the local morgue, not to transport the injured to hospital. And we met lots of migrants who told us that they hadn't had any medical care and that they were still living months later with injuries from that day. So yes, as you said, there were clashes in the hilly areas in the forest surrounding the border the day before. And the migrants told us that the authorities had told them they needed to move from that area within 24 hours, or the authorities had been authorized to use live bullets against them. So that, that sets up, you know, in their words, they said, we had no choice. We had to go to the border. We had to try. And many of them said, we either died trying or we would make it. You know, we, we had no choice. We had to leave this area. Uh, these are people that, that they don't have the resources. You know, there are other routes for people to get into Europe. A lot of those are very, very costly. So Yusuf, I mentioned earlier, who traveled via the Canary Islands, he had to pay people smugglers to take him across. He, he's fleeing conflict in Sudan. Um, and that's a very costly route, whereas this route is is you know, you can walk across the border and and at times, and that's an important part of this, at times when relations between Spain and Morocco have been particularly bad, it's almost been suggested that Morocco allowed people to, to walk across those borders. And, and the other territory, Ceuta, that I mentioned, uh, which is similar to Malia, uh, they allowed people to kind of wade through the water and walk across with very little intervention. And, and that was only the year before this incident. And even in the months before this incident, in March of this year, uh, there was a very different response from the authorities there. And there is a lot of suggestions from human rights campaigners that that may be connected to the political relationship between Spain and Morocco and that migration is being used as a political tool. And while we were there, while we were um, you know, in the two countries and, and, and looking into this incident, uh, there was an agreement not long after the June 24 incident, there was an agreement uh, where the EU agreed to pay Morocco half a billion euros uh, to help in the in the kind of control of migration between the two countries. So certainly this is an issue that has been a kind of hot topic between the two countries and there's some suggestion that this incident was all playing into that. What have you thought of the Spanish government's response so far post the Ombudsman's initial report and post your documentary coming out? Well, the Spanish government has come out and said uh, again that there is no evidence that there were any deaths on Spanish territory. Um, and that is in contrast to what we found and, and what we were told when we when we were there on the ground in Malia at the border post. Uh, and our reporter was standing with a member of the Garda Seville on an area in front of a gate where we have vision showing 
at least three dead bodies. So um, it's very, a, a lot of this is in language, you know, it's very hard to, to say uh, exactly where each country starts and finishes. You know, a border is a fluid place. And I think that a lot of this ambiguity is being relied upon by the authorities to kind of push onto each other. And, and we saw the Moroccan government pointed the finger at the Spanish government and vice versa in the wake of this incident. So uh, it's it's very difficult within a border to say who controls each area. But what we what I keep going back to is the fact that there were Spanish keys to unlock that gate. Now, if you don't have control of an area, why would you have the keys? It, the, the Moroccan keys don't open that gate. So, you know, in this area where, where the Spanish... Now, of course, they didn't open the gate that day, and we know that. The gate was forced open because of a, a deadly stampede. People were crushed in that stampede. Uh, and that was the official version of events after this incident, that, that people were crushed to death. But we found evidence that, that it wasn't just pe- people being crushed to death, that people were beaten across the head on the Moroccan side by Moroccan security forces. They alleged that they were beaten across the head and, and detained on the ground for hours without medical care. And, and that's the information that we didn't have before this investigation. And that's what we really were trying to pin down. And also what what Spain did that day uh, is also something we were looking at. And, and, and that's a, a, you know, a key question of accountability here that, that uh, we hope that the release of CCTV might shed some light on. As you were saying before, Spain has EU support when it comes to firm borders. They are the gate to Europe from this part of North Africa. EU governments know that when migrants come to Spain, they aren't necessarily intending to stay in Spain, but move to areas where they have connections throughout Europe. On top of that, this evidently brutal way of operating the border seems to be directly linked to the strength of diplomatic ties between Spain and Morocco. Given these two points, do you see the methods of border control changing even after you've uncovered such shocking vision and we've seen past examples of this for years? Well, that will be up to the two governments in their response to this investigation. And we know that a delegation of Spanish uh, parliamentarians are going to the border area on Monday and they will, that's on the 7th of November, and they will have some access to the CCTV of that day. Now, that won't be released publicly, but they are being told that they'll be able to view it that day. So we are hoping to hear more about this and, and I hope this is not the end of, of what we see here. We've also heard Amnesty International is planning a big investigation. Uh, they'll be releasing their findings shortly, which which seems to suggest from what they've said so far um, that they came up with similar findings that, that we did. So I don't think this question is going away. And I think it, it time will tell how the governments respond to this and, and whether this kind of uh, response at the borders will be tolerated anymore by the people in, in Spain, the people in the EU um, paying paying money, European money, towards um, this kind of border controls. And just lastly, have you heard anything from your sources in migrant camps in Morocco or waiting for their processing as refugees? Has this given any hope for them that their stories have been shared or that there could be a different future ahead? These were young guys in their 20s. Um, They had left whole families back in mainly Sudan and they were traumatized from this event. Um, you know, we spoke to several who who said, you know, I, I wish I died that day. I'm I'm not alive now. I'm I'm traumatized. 
So, you know, we've stayed in contact with them. Obviously, they are in very precarious situations now. Um, many of them are, are living in fear um, of the authorities, especially those ones still in Morocco. And most of them that I've been in contact with since we aired the documentary have said, I really hope we get justice from this. Uh, just they had they had completely lost hope. And I think having spoken to them since the documentary has gone out, you know, that there is a glimmer of hope again that that maybe their stories will be heard. And, and that was the overwhelming thing they said to us is I really hope that our voices are heard. Ah, well, Courtney Bembridge, thank you so much for coming on La Portada today. It must have been very confronting for your team to piece together this story and, you know, for those poor people to have to be re-traumatised in, in sharing their stories. But it, I think it really does help Spaniards particularly and people in Spain to understand that this is happening on Spanish territory. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your interest. Wow, that's really tough stuff, isn't it, Lily? Mm, yeah, very, very heavy but very necessary and, and a very good example, I think, of how with a little bit of time and, and, and a lot of people involved, you can take one of these stories where social media suddenly blows up with dozens of videos but yeah. you can't verify what what is right and what is real uh they did this really really well mm. so go and check it out as well but uh it didn't just stop this week at the documentary being released it, it did reinvigorate debate in parliament this week didn't it simon um how have you seen the major parties react to it yeah well i mean before i come on to that is i just want to say it's it's pretty embarrassing for the spanish government isn't it because it, it, when it comes from a foreign media mm. um, outlet when it comes from the bbc obviously it's drawing even more attention it's pretty embarrassing for the spanish media as well well, well on that <laughs> I, I i noticed on twitter there was quite a lot of uh animosity i suppose from some spanish journalists who have been working on this issue for years making films about this making yeah. documentaries on this exact kind of story because this this has happened so many times of in the course. past and on this specific case uh, and yet you know their stories didn't get the spanish government moving as much as the bbc's one has well or, maybe that's what it needed do you yeah, know what i mean yeah. it needs someone from outside to come and but what a shame a that, yeah. that they need a you know, neighbour to, 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 to say something's wrong for it to be called out. Well, absolutely. No, and what was, to go back to your question, and mm. what was interesting about the political response was that even Unidas Podemos, which is mm. obviously the, you know, the Socialist Party's uh, coalition partner, even Unidas Podemos is calling for a, a, a proper inquiry. Um, the PP called on Sanchez to clarify whether he knew about the order to drag the bodies from one border to the other, um, which is obviously that's the toughest part of the video. And I think if I'm right, in, am I right in saying that's the bit of the video that they didn't actually show on the BBC? They, you know, they too gave graphic. all the yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They gave all the usual warnings mm -hmm. about it being too very graphic, but that was the bit that, that they didn't show. Well, I mean, the the images are just oh, just awful. Mm -hmm. um, the leader of centre right, Ciudadanos, Inés Arrimadas, um, she argued that if the Socialist Party and Unidas Podemos were in opposition right now yeah. and not in government, they would be burning down the streets. Which is true, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. I, of course, they would. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, but the government has been really sticking to its guns on this. It's uh, Interior Minister Fernando Grande Marlaska, and he's been insisting that you know nothing was, you know, there was no wrongdoing, and he praised the actions of the civil mm. guard, and he's you know said several times that this was a you know obviously a coordinated and a very violent. An attack by the uh, the migrants who were armed with um, sticks and things like that. 
Although, of course, in the documentary, one of them points out, that, okay, well, if I'm carrying a stick, it's to help me get over the mm. fence. It's not mm. necessarily because I'm looking to attack anyone. And let's face it, these guys, you know, these poor yeah. people are going up against heavily uh, armed and, uh, you know, body armor wearing... Rubber bullets, tear gas. But also, police, once, they're, yeah. once they're locked or sort of pushed or, or the crowd finds, finds themselves in an enclosure and they're tear gassed, you know... Why? Why continue to tear gas them? Yeah, well, that, and that's what one, what the victims say that they're actually getting. You know, some of them died suffocated that's because true. they were being there was so much tear gas around. So yeah, it's, it's just oh, it's just awful. So as was mentioned in the interview, what is interesting is that the interior minister has moved on this, and this group of deputies is going to be able to see the videos uh, recorded by mm. the civil guard, which until now had been uh, had been kept. Um, have been kept away from uh, other eyes. But I mean, the interior minister is still denying that there was, you know, these bodies were dragged um, back from the Spanish side to the Moroccan side. And, and you know, the, the, the ministry is saying that the BBC is making serious accusations without proof. So who knows whether we'll eventually be able to see uh, all yeah. of those videos. Well, but it will, uh, let's see what the commission finds. That's let's see right. what the commission, the deputies say after that they have seen them and see if there is a, a case to be made. Yeah, well, if there's nothing wrong with the treatment, why not release that CCTV? Exactly. Okay, well, to something a lot lighter in Media Watch this week, Simon, the creation of Listenberg. I'm not sure if you followed this because you were <laughs> off uh, gavelanting in uh, Asturias. But, uh, well, first of all, an apology to our wonderful American listeners, because this was a fictitious country that was created as a sort of internet test targeted at you, Americans. It started with a tweet saying, I'm sure Americans don't even know the name of this country, with a very makeshift map graphic of Europe with a new big landmass tacked on next to Galicia in the north uh, northwest corner of Spain and above Portugal's north coast. Quickly, people began perpetuating the lie by creating fake, like, high-res satellite image images of the country. So it was no longer a sort of bad map graphic. It was a, looked like a Google image map satellite image. Uh, and an account was set up supposing to be the country's Ministry of Interior, Political parties jokingly invited it to join the EU. Wikipedia pages suggested it had its own Formula One Grand Prix and space team. Then sports commentators started calling for the country to be involved in international events. Amazon Prime announced a new documentary would be coming out covering the country. Deliveroo said it would deliver there. Ryanair said it was going to open a new base. And it just oh continues to spiral. Where do people find the time? To do <laughs> what are they doing? But I love it. It's so cool. No, it is. It's really creative. funny. We'll put it put it in our Twitter thread, obviously, so you can see what it looks like. But it does look very, very funny, the map that they'd mocked up. But in defense of Americans and anyone mm. who is not good at geography, I, I, I'm terrified at this stuff I mean if yeah. you showed me a map of Europe I wait you without know, I the know. borders or without exactly the I don't think I would be able to yeah. you know name more than a handful of countries I mean yes. countries I mean, shamefully not, I, I agree I'm, I would be the same I'm not a stupid person you know I'm not like I'm not amazingly intelligent but I'm not a stupid person but I I, I think it's a bit unfair sometimes to judge people's intelligence and whether well, they can pick out a country suppose, on a map or not I mean in defense of this this was a pretty French-led joke but I mean <laughs> oh, it, we have French. we have 
have a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence in Australia even of people coming across Americans and them saying to Australians, your English is so good. Yeah. You well, know, that's, things, yeah. things like that. And, and you know, well, they... That is just dumb. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> <laughs> I saw Euronews uh, reference CNN once, you know, messing up map graphics, uh, misidentifying cities and... France and Germany that are well known. I mean, there is some precedent here for the joke, but yes, uh, you could be forgiven for not knowing. So, have you applied? Have you applied for your passport? Yeah, well, I'll I'd take a Spanish you're a good passport. Good backup. First. If this Spain thing doesn't work out, we can all move. That's then. true. There'll be a Listenberg Brexit soon. <laughs> okay. Well, right now, there's nothing left to do but get straight into Simon's news roundup. Thousands of protesters this week took to Madrid's Plaza Mayor Square to demand higher pay in the midst of the ongoing cost of living crisis. Inflation came in at 7.3% in the year to October, according to Reuters, after having hit 10% in the summer. Unai Sordo, the Secretary General of Spain's largest union, the CCOO, told radio network Cadena Ser that workers were demanding an increase of around 4% this year and 3% in the next two years, conceding that wages will probably not be able to grow in line with inflation. The possibility of protests in Spain prompted the UK Foreign Office this week to issue a travel warning to anyone visiting the country on the basis there is a possibility that unrest or violence may take place. There has been another high-profile wine heist, this time in the Spanish capital. Thieves took advantage of a neighbouring building to force their way into Michelin-starred restaurant Coque, run by famed chef Mario Sandoval and his two brothers. The gang managed to get away with more than 130 bottles of wine from the cellar, with a value of more than €200,000. The theft, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, comes in the wake of the high-profile robbery of 45 bottles of wine from from their Atrio Hotel and Restaurant in Spain's Cáceres province in 2021. The pilfered plonk in that case was worth 1.6 million euros and the bottles have never been recovered. And finally, Spain's animal rights political party PACMA has shared a bizarre video of a naked hunter via its social media accounts. The man is seen on top of a stone wall brandishing a shotgun and wearing just boots, socks and gloves. There are a number of dead partridges hanging from his weapon and one of the birds is also attached to his penis. As his companions watch, laugh and record the scene, he goes on a rant that appears to be in favour of hunting, shouting, Long live Spain! Don't ever stop this! Let the same system continue every year so we can catch partridges every year and have a good time. Pacma accompanied the video with a message that read, The truth is stranger than fiction. Thanks for doing our campaigning work for us every day, hunters. Remember that the votes of these people count the same as yours do. Jeez. Sure that are, we, was, we, are we sure that wasn't a Halloween costume joke? How much alcohol should you consume while <laughs> holding a shotgun is the question that that oh, video prompts. Man, Spain.
Okay, well, that's it from our sixth episode of La Portada Season 2. This season has absolutely flown by. We're taking a short two-week break and we'll be back with more La Portada at the end of this month. This episode was recorded on November 4th in Madrid City. Your hosts were Simon Hunter and me, Lily Mayers. As always, don't forget to get in touch. Our socials are at LaPortadaPod and our email is LaPortadaPod at gmail.com. You can also tweet us directly at Simon in Madrid and at Lily Mayers. If you aren't already, please go and support us on Patreon. All we ask for is the small quantity to cover a relaxing cup of café con leche in Plaza Mayor. Head to patreon.com forward slash LaPortadaPod where you can support this podcast and ensure that we continue you hasta tres semanas que viene hasta luego